This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Earlier this year, we published a story about protactyl, an emerging language based on touch that's increasingly used by deafblind people. It was written by Andrew Leland, and one of Andrew's subjects was a man named John Lee Clark. Clark was born deaf, and he lost his sight when he was young to a condition called Usher Syndrome. He became a poet and a scholar of literature, and a new collection of Clark's work is out this week. It's called How to Communicate. Andrew Leland was eager to speak with him again. I first encountered John Lee Clark on an email listserv. Poetry Magazine was about to publish an essay he'd written, and I wrote to him asking for a copy. It was a casual request which began what was, for me, a life-changing correspondence. I have a related disease to Clark's. It's called RP, and it's causing me to slowly lose my sight. In Clark's writing and in our correspondence, I was struck again and again by the way he described his experience as a deafblind person. Despite the rest of the world's tendency to imagine deafblind life in tragic terms as a land of silence and darkness, Clark's writing is full of humor and life. A running theme in his work is the importance of touch, a sense that sighted and hearing people tend to diminish or ignore. Let me give you an example, a poem of his called Clamor. It's being read here by Haline or Hal Anderson, a woman who frequently works with John as an interpreter. Clamor. All things living and dead cry out to me when I touch them. The dog, gasping for air, is drowning in ecstasy, its neck shouting, dig in, dig in, slam me, slam me, demands one door while another asks to remain open. My wife again asks me, how did I know? just where and how to caress her. I can be too eager to listen. The scar here on my thumb is a gift from a cracked bowl that begged to be broken. 
To read and write, John usually uses a digital braille display, which converts the text on his computer into refreshable dots of braille on a little electronic device the size of a computer keyboard. As we corresponded, I began to imagine him in his home office in Minnesota, his cat asleep on his feet, playing that braille display like a virtuoso, firing off manifestos and poems and essays at all hours. Great, yeah. Okay. We met up earlier this fall when he was visiting St. Louis. Great. Well, John, I'm so glad to, to see you again, to touch you again, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me again. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. This is great. It's great to be here with you. That's Hal Anderson again. She's interpreting for John here using a language called protactile. Unlike American Sign Language or ASL, which is a visual language, protactile happens entirely on the body. Think of rapid-fire taps, squeezes, traces, hand shapes, and presses that are all articulated on the hands, arms, shoulders, upper chest, lower thighs, and even the back. My, my hand that's on your knee is giving you feedback. So sometimes when you say something that, as frequently happens, rocks my world, blows my mind, I vigorously agree with, I will pat your knee like this. If, I, if you start saying something that I'm gravely, gravely disappointed with or disagree with vehemently, then I'm going to swipe and wipe because this is, this, that's the basic protactile that I know. And then if you crack me up, I do a spidery little tickle kind of on your knee. Yes. Absolutely. Great. Clark's first language, when he still had his sight as a child, was ASL. It's what his family spoke at home. And we started our conversation talking about that early part of his life. The first day that I attended school, I went on the bus. And I got on the bus, boarded it, sat down, we took off. My mom didn't trust that I was going to actually like get there and be okay. And so she pulled up kind of behind the bus. She followed along the bus in her car and watched me. And when I got off the bus, she approached me and said, so how was it? Were you okay? And I said, I, I'm fine, but uh, the bus driver seems to forget all uh, how to talk, you know, <laughs> all of their vocabulary. They, they couldn't talk with me. And she said, no, 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 they're hearing. And I said, mm. they're hearing. Well, look, what, what is that? So my mom had to explain to me, that not everyone in the world spoke like we did. So they're learning that there are other people in the world who essentially couldn't talk. That was a rude, rude awakening. Mm. I love that kind of inversion of how hearing people tend to frame deaf people. And, and, it, and, it, and it reminds us that the life of ASL is equal to that of English, and there's no reason why we need to center English in the way that, that the hearing world does. Yes, absolutely. Yep, spot on, Andrew. Yet, here you are with this magisterial book of poetry in magisterial English. So something happened along the way where you befriended English. And when, when and how did that happen? Okay. Well, it's complicated. It's a little complicated. So... Being a baby, I immediately was immersed in the language of my family. And 
because I came from a deaf family, other kids knew that I was a source of information to them. You know, they didn't have a whole lot of other deaf role models in their lives. And so I ended up kind of being that for some kids. I took a leadership role uh, as a child among my peers. And as I became more and more blind, as I got older, like, for example, in the sixth grade, I went to a school for the deaf as opposed to that little deaf program. And at that residential school, the school for the deaf, I had to abide by deaf customs, you know, and norms. And so I wound up at a crossroads because I wasn't deaf. I was deafblind. At that age, even, I was deafblind. And so I, things, I didn't fit the, the mold. I did not fit the deaf mold. Um, and so, for example, I'll, I'll just give you an example here. Waving hands to get someone's attention is something that happens oftentimes. I wouldn't see someone who waved at me, and I would just go about my business, and they would think that I was being extremely rude because I wasn't responding appropriately. So people started to disregard me, to push me away. And so I was more isolated at that point, and so I got involved in books. I was like, well, if you guys are going to go on without me, well, then I've got better things to do than to go off with you, too. And I was hooked on books at that point um, because of what they are infected, I guess, with readerly disease, I guess you could call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, because, yeah, books, books did a whole, whole lot for me. They helped me to get through a, a really tough time. Um, any titles or authors come to mind as primary vehicles for that literary disease that you contracted in sixth grade? Well, funny you ask. What happened was I entered a drugstore, and they had some mass market books on the shelf. Uh, and I had to decide, I'm going to get a book. Okay, what book should I get? So I browsed for a little minute and, of course, happened upon a super thick book. All these other slim volumes, ah, those aren't for me. I need to go after the biggest book I could find, you know. And it happened to be Ken Follett's um, The Pillars, The Pillars of the Earth. And I ended up going back to that drugstore to buy other books, uh, again, those mass market books that they sell. But I noticed, though, in reading them, that it was hard to read them because their print was so small. So I was trying to figure out, well, how can I get a hold of books with bigger print? And I went to the Goodwill, and they had lots of hardcover books. And so I graduated to those um, because they had larger print. And then after that, ended up going into frequenting used bookstores. And then Barnes & Noble, I'd go through the bins to see which books had the largest font, you know, that was large enough for me to read comfortably. So I didn't choose books based on the story, the content, the topic. If I could read them, if they were legible to me, you know, or uh, visible, I guess, the font size was comfortable, then they passed muster. And, and it actually helped me. It, it did take me on a, a sort of certain trajectory, you know, in literature. I mean, Kafka, uh, Nabokov, you know, those kinds of authors that 
They just happened to be that their books were printed with larger print. If I wasn't blind, I would probably have just stuck with the mass market media, and maybe I wouldn't have moved out of that genre altogether. So hidden blessings, Andrew. Mm. I love that. Um, you talked about this this moment when you're realizing that your vision is changing and it's changing um, how you the decisions you make and how you live and um, and I want to read uh, a poem that I think connects to that experience, which by the way, you know is um, in a very different way, I guess something that I'm going through myself. Um, you know, so I, I identify a lot with what you're saying too, just in terms of being blind, and yet also, you know, I'm about to read this poem off the page, and that's not a um, oxymoron, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> Goldilocks in denial. Goldilocks was in deep denial and refused to use a white cane. That's how she got lost in the woods, stumbling over tree roots and things. Then she hit a wall, a house, door. She entered and wrinkled her nose and remembered the Annie movie from when she was little. It was the part where Daddy Warbucks said, I smell a wet dog. It was dark inside, so she did her ginger duck walk and zombie arms until she came against a table with some food on it. After emptying a bag of Doritos, she wandered deeper into the house. Kitchen, bathroom, living room, small chair, too small, medium-sized chair, too hard, big recliner. Ah, that's much better. When the three bears got home, they were happy to find that they had company. Papa Bear shook Goldilocks awake and asked, Who you? When she didn't answer, Papa Bear put his paw under her hand. She snatched her hand back and said, I can see. Papa Bear said, Okay, and asked again, Who you? She said, I'm from Long Island, here vacation. Papa Bear asked, When arrive here, you? She said, My name Yellow Curls. Papa Bear asked, Need help you? She said, we'll soon graduate, May. Papa Bear gave up and turned to Mama Bear and said, denial, obvious, misunderstand, misunderstand. Mama Bear said, sad, yes, nothing can do, leave alone. Baby Bear asked if he could play with yellow curls. Mama Bear thought about it and said, no, better not. Yellow curls, denial, means hard talk, can't play good. So the whole Bear clan went about their business as if Goldilocks wasn't sitting there. She jumped up and stamped her feet and said, Not nice, you ignore, avoid me. She whirled around to make a dramatic exit, but ended up in the bedroom where she stumbled and fell into a bed. She stayed on the bed for a long time, pretending that she had planned to sleep there all along. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) It shows a little bit of denial as, as a psychological state, Right, But what happens later on, if a person's losing their vision or whatever, they sometimes try, I mean, things are overlooked, right? And when accidents do happen, people sometimes will say, oh, well, I intended to do that. So it's a psychological effect that happens that I went through myself. I noticed myself doing it. And it's, a person usually does that when they're not in a great place. But it's, you know, it's a part of the journey, I would say. You know, it's a part, it's part of the journey. There's that moment in the poem when Papa Bear puts his paw underneath her hand in the way that, you know, 
your hand, the Hal's hand is underneath yours right now. And, and, and to me, just because I've spent time with you and been, I've been experienced a protectile, it's clear to me as a, as a somewhat initiated reader that that's a moment of saying, let's, let's communicate tactilely. And, and part of her denial is, denial is to say, no, 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 I can see I don't need to communicate tactilely. And can you talk about that aspect of, of becoming deafblind and the, the way it changes uh, how, to, how you communicate? So, as I said, you know, in that period of time where I maybe was in denial and um, things were getting muddled for me, and I probably did respond as Goldilocks did off the mark when people mentioned or said just certain things to me, certain comments, I didn't respond in kind. But I then became a role model for other deaf people. I'm a teacher, uh, I provide training, I get other deaf people, deaf, sorry, deafblind people on board. And, um, and when I do that, there are other people who are in that denial phase. And that's tough for me as a teacher. And I think part of that frustration that I have with them potentially is my own frustration at myself, my past self, coming up and revisiting. We're listening to a conversation between contributor Andrew Leland and the poet John Lee Clark. We'll continue in a moment. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future, so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Ross Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, Protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Um, I want to read another poem. Uh, And this one makes me laugh every time I read it in part because as a journalist who is writing about deafblind communities, I feel like it's a little bit of a a warning sign. 
It's from Three Squared Sincanes. It's one of the Sincanes. The reporter is in awe. The reporter is in awe of a deaf-blind man who cooks without burning himself. Helen Keller is to blame. Can't I pick my nose without it being a miracle? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I guess you know, I laugh because I'm a reporter and I'm in awe and yet I want to know how to be impressed with you, John, and your accomplishments. <laughs> well, you're strangling me now. <laughs> but I am. And and I wonder it's it, it raises I think a tricky and interesting and important question about disability, which is that on the one hand, like you're doing incredible things like you've written an incredible book of poetry on the other hand there is such a risk of of becoming that reporter who's in awe and i wonder like how do how do we avoid that that infantilizing you know praising you for picking your nose while still recognizing the wonderful stuff you're doing mm. mm-hmm Well, I don't know what to advise, <laughs> but I think um, for, for me, I'm a little lucky. You know, one, one concept maybe, one place of struggle is when lots of people with disabilities are crying, screaming for access, you know, I want access, I want access, we have these rights, we, you know, we want our rights to be protected. And I think that attitude might lend itself to certain other attitudes in, in response. And for me, I think I take things a little bit different. Um, my take is a little bit different. I think it can actually be a boon. It can be a benefit when we have less access to the mainstream because it means they have less access to us. And what that means is we then have at our disposal this beautiful community. I mean, a community that isn't being thrust upon from, by outside forces, we have, I mean, a, a whole wealth um, of things that we can then develop and that we can, and we don't have to be stuck with just one world. Within, we can journey into and create all kinds of different approaches and things because we don't have anyone else sort of breathing down our necks, expecting certain things, wanting certain things. Let me read another one of these Sincanes just to add it to the conversation. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, go for it. And it's and it's and if I'm, I think it's a riff on Emily Dickinson. Um, am I a nobody too? Yes, you got, okay. you got it. I got yep, it. yep. I had some help from my wife, but <clears throat> am I a nobody too? I am sorry to disappoint, but I am. Yet nobody would let me be one. Not even when I catch a bus stinking of nobodies. Well, so oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. If some readers buy my book, they'll know I'm a deafblind poet at time of purchase. They're in awe just holding it in their hands. They haven't read a single poem, maybe. So they're just in awe even finding out the piece of, the piece of information of me being deafblind. <gasps> Wait, a deafblind person? 
got a book of po poetry published, published a book of poetry? No way. The awe is there already. So I hope in those instances, in those cases, I hope that when they open that first cover, I hope that what strikes them first and foremost is a, is a sense of disappointment. I want them to be disappointed. And then I want them to go, oh, this isn't what I thought. This isn't what I And then I hope that they return to the text for the right reasons, Andrew. Mm. <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm sorry, that I am selfish. I'm a selfish person. I hope that um, people are in awe because the poetry they read strikes awe in them and that they are amazed by the quality of the poems that's in the book. That, that's my hope, mm. my selfish hope, Andrew. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So when we were setting up this interview, you made a joke over email about this tendency where people don't believe that the interpreter is really interpreting what the deafblind person is saying. And when I heard that, I felt really sad, but I also thought, really, you know, the, that's not going to be something that we're going to deal with today. Um, and then I was talking to a friend who's very bright and really should know better. And he, he kind of was like, how do you know that, that that's what, you know, that, that, that protectile is really a language and that it's not just the interpreter, you know, speaking for John or for the deafblind person. And my heart broke a little bit. And I, and I just, what do you say to that person, you know, to the people out there who may be well-meaning, you know, but, but, but still find themselves in awe and even in disbelief of the idea that, um, that protactile has the richness that it does? I'm not too worried about saying anything to them, to be honest, because I, I do trust. I have faith in, in the listeners, Andrew. I trust that what they're imagining is wrong. I have faith that they are going to misconstrue some things and misconceive some things. But in that misconstrual and in those, some of those misconceptions, they're going to happen upon some things that are true. Many oppressed communities are really concerned with image and with representation. And they uh, stress out about it, they worry, they um, take, take pulse and you know, they, they say, oh, how, are they recognizing us and are, are they really sort of seeing us for who we are and how are we being portrayed? And there's a lot of worry on the community's part about PR. I don't have a real connection with that feeling because those of us in the deafblind community, the experiences that we've had have been so, so rich that honestly, I don't really care. And I don't mean that in a rude way. I don't mean like, I don't care about these people. No, 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 no. You know, I have friends that are hearing and sighted and I adore them, I love them. That's not my point. But my point is that I'm not going to deliberate uh, over how to convince other people to approve of me and accept the language I'm using, and I'm not going to be scanning, you know, the horizon for for naysayers. I'm going to be like, when this book is published, hey, if you're into it, 
you know, and that's something that you're eager to delve into, do it. If it doesn't float your boat, move on. That's, you know, with a shrug. I'm too busy to worry much about what that response is in terms of what other people are thinking. The poet John Lee Clark talking with contributor Andrew Leland. Clark's new collection, How to Communicate, is out this week. We heard the voice of Helene Anderson, who translated from spoken English into protactile. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Alexis Quadrado and Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Brita Green, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen and Putubwele. Along with Adam Howard, Jeffrey Masters, Will Coley, and Michael May. And we had assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kuchman, Meher Bhatia, and James Napoli. And special thanks this week to Sarah Fenton. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.